0: Well, in our world today, it's estimated that there are more than 7 billion people spread across 200 odd countries, depending on how you count them, speaking more than 7,000 different languages. Of those 7,000 different languages, these are the most popular ones. You might not be able to, to see them uh, there, uh, those languages are spoken by about two thirds of the world's population. Most uh, people speak Chinese, uh, which won't be surprising to you. Now, I don't know if Scouse is one of those 23 languages. Sometimes, I've lived in Liverpool for 10 years, and sometimes in that time, it's felt as if I have needed to learn a new language. I had an old mate of mine. He was called Jordan, and we used to play in the same football team. I often picked him up from his, from his house to take him to a match. Anyway, one morning I was chatting to him on the phone, he said, don't come to my house. You need to pick me up from the Asda. And I said, why? And he said, I need to get some scran and top up me Nan's Leckie. And I thought to myself, do what? <laughs> what, Jordan, what are you gonna do to your Nan? <laughs> I'm sure it was the same for him as well, trying to understand me. I'd only been in Liverpool a year at that point, and I was still sort of getting to grips with Scouse. But I remember thinking, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Even though we spoke the same language, there was a communication barrier between us. But it's amazing, isn't it, to think all of those languages in the world, that the cultures and people and nations... That are represented by that. It's an, it's an amazing thing about humanity, that diversity. But it's also a difficult thing, isn't it? Not everyone looks like me, talks like me, sees the world like me. I'm sure m- most of you know what it's like to be a foreigner in another country. You don't know the language. That can be quite disorientating for a while until you sort of figure out what the signs mean. If you're a classic Brit abroad like me, you learn a couple of key phrases. You learn how to order a coffee or un croissant if vous play, and then basically the rest of the time you rely on people knowing English. Hope for the best. But sometimes it's more serious than that, isn't it? If someone speaks a language that you don't understand, it, may, it can make you feel quite alienated, like a complete outsider. It might even make you feel scared or anxious or fearful, especially if that person speaking a different language seems to be angry with you for something you've done. Our different languages and and cultures, they create a a divide between us, don't they? That's why we call it a language barrier. And in these two chapters of Genesis that Vilika so wonderfully read for us, we're, we're thinking about how those different languages came to be in our world and what that means for us today but while we're on the topic of languages, there's just one thing we need to deal with before we we dive into this passage and you, you may have noticed this in in the reading just then in genesis 10 it says that there were lots of different languages but then at the beginning of chapter 11 it says that there's only one a common language so what is going on with that the first thing I want you to notice is that those two sort of bits in chapter 10 and 11, they are part of the same story. As we've seen, every single new section in Genesis begins in exactly the same way. The This is the account of dot, dot, dot. And there's one of those in uh, chapter 10, verse 1, and another one in chapter 11, verse 10, which means everything Villica read to us, it is part of one coherent story. So how do we explain this apparent contradiction? Are there many languages or is there one? Well, here's what I think is going on. Chapters 10 and 11 are cause and effect. Usually, we get the cause first and then the effect. That's how we normally see things. But here, that order is reversed. So chapter 10 is the effect and chapter 11 is the cause. So chronologically, if you're sort of following the story chronologically through time, chapter 11 happens first. Chapter 11 happens before chapter 10, or maybe more precisely in the middle of chapter 10, in the time of Peleg, because in his time, the earth was divided. So some people think it happens in the middle of chapter 10. But basically what's happening, we we get the effect first, and then we're told why. Chapter 11 is a kind of flashback to what happened before chapter 10 to make this all happen. It's telling us what what God did that caused the scattering in chapter 10. So we're going to look at it that way around. We're going to look at chapter 11 first and then chapter 10. And so first of all, uh, chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel, uh, we're going to see this. Don't stay to make a name for yourself. Don't stay to make a name for yourself. Chapter 11. And I guess it all happens to, it happens to all of us in then, doesn't it? That time comes when you want to settle down. That's what's happening at the beginning of chapter 11. Humanity is looking for a home, somewhere to live and settle down. And so we're told they move east to this place called Shinar and settle there. But we should already be a bit concerned about this movement. In Genesis, east is always a bad direction. When Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden, they were pushed east. When Cain was cursed again after murdering his brother, he went even further east of Eden. In Genesis, when people move away from God, away from God's purposes... The direction they go is always east. And so in verse 2, as we we hear this happy band of humanity moving east, we're meant to think there's something about this mass migration of humanity that's not good. And in verse 4, we find out what it is. Verse 4, they say to each other, come, let's build ourselves a city. With a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole world. Now, you might think, what's so bad about that? They just want somewhere safe to settle down and find security and protection. They want to stay put and commit to a place. They want to be united and build their lives and let their families flourish. What's so bad about that? But look underneath the surface and there's a bit more going on to this. Um, first, because they want this city to have a tower that reaches all the way up to heaven. But this, this tower's not just any old tall tower. This tower is a siege tower. It's a structure that's going to raise them up to storm the gates of heaven itself. This is a tower that's designed to reach God so that they can rival their desire is to be able to get up to heaven, kick God off the throne of the universe, and sit there themselves. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by that. We've seen, even from the very beginning, humanity in the Garden of Eden has always wanted more. That's why Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden. Because it wasn't enough to be in the likeness of God. They wanted to be God. That's why their language in verses three and four is meant to kind of mimic God. In Genesis chapter one, God says literally, Come, let us make mankind in our image. And here they say, like God, Come, let us make bricks, a city, a tower. They're trying to be God. So, this this city and the tower, it's not really about safety and security. It's about glory. That's what they want. They want glory. God's glory for themselves. And it's clear because their big reason for wanting to build this city with this big tower that reaches to the heavens. Is so that they can make a name for themselves. This unity of humanity to fortify and glorify themselves by their collective effort. It's it's pride. It's just selfish ambition. This stairway to heaven. It's nothing more than a grand vanity project. The tower is a means to an end. To make a name for themselves. To be famous. To be remembered. To be celebrated. To achieve significance and importance and influence. The tower... Is about power. And human beings are still the same today, aren't we? Tall buildings are an efficient use of space up to a certain point. After that, they're just big, expensive, tall buildings. But they make a statement, don't they? When you go to London and you see the the skyscrapers, it makes a statement about wealth and power and status and glory. It's about making a name for ourselves. And it's not just people who build tall buildings. We're all doing that in our own small or big ways, trying to make a name for ourselves. But as is so often the case with us, The way that we lift ourselves up and make a name for ourselves is by trampling down on other people. I'm sure you're aware about this, the controversy about the World Cup in Qatar uh, that's happening uh, this month. And that's partly because in the last 12 years since Qatar was awarded the World Cup, uh, Qatar has built eight new football stadiums, they've built lots of new hotels, expanded the airport, built new infrastructure, all the rest, ready for the World Cup. But virtually all of that has been built by migrant workers. Poorly paid, working in extreme conditions, and, and, and really poor living standards. And more than 7,000 of those migrant workers have died in the process. And something similar is happening in Babel. When the people say to each other, come, come let's make bricks. Come, let's make ourselves a city. We're meant to hear an echo of someone else in the Bible who does that. Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh says to his officials, come, let's deal shrewdly with these Israelites. And how do they do that? By enslaving Israel, forcing them to build cities out of bricks. It's a deliberate parallel. See, on on the surface, everything looks kind of great in Babel. This is a society where people are working together to build something magnificent. But if you look a bit closer, it's built on the backs of slaves. Just like lots of cities are, including our own. That's part of the reason why God acts to judge what's happening in Babel. Because they're sinfully seeking to make a name for themselves while trampling down other people weaker than them. That's one part of their sin. But there's another aspect to it in verse 4. See, they come together not only out of ambition, but out of a deep insecurity. So they're not just trying to achieve something, they're actually also trying to avoid something. They're trying to avoid being scattered. Scattered. Now again, you might think, what's wrong with that? What's what's wrong with that desire to stay put, to be comfortable where you are? Well, the problem, at least for these people, is that it's the very opposite of what God, God told them to do. Last week, we saw how God recommissioned Noah and his sons. God blessed them and said to them, increase in number, fill the earth. God has told them to spread out. To fill it up with more people made in the image of God. But in plain defiance of the Lord's instructions, they say no. God tells them to scatter and they say, no, we're staying. They're deeply resistant to that commission to go and fill the earth. So humanity is united in this grand enterprise, but the whole project is anti-God. They're united, but but they're united as rebels against God. And so in verses 5 to 9 in chapter 11, the Lord comes to judge this whole scheme. And verse 5 is deeply ironic, isn't it? They've built this tower which they think is so high, and yet God has to come down to see it. It's obviously not that high. Not that impressive. But there's something amazing here which which shows us what God is like. Because the truth is we can never reach up to God by our own efforts or our own innovation or cleverness. But God will come down to us in the person of Jesus to make a way for us to reach heaven. It's what Jesus will do. But here in verses 6 and 7, God doesn't come down to give them a way up comes down to judge them. He strikes at the heart of their unity, this common language. And, and of course that is a punishment for their sin, but, it's, but there's more going on too. It's also a kind of preventative measure. This is a, a merciful judgment. God says in, in verse six, if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Now don't misunderstand what God is saying there. Those are not the words of, of a God who's threatened by the possibilities of human achievement. They're not the words of an anxious rival, but of a loving father. The problem is, they're building a city on the backs of slaves, and that's just the beginning. If they're allowed to carry on doing that, there will only be more injustice, exploitation, corruption, and violence, their problems will only multiply and intensify as they trample upon each other to make a name for themselves. And so God judges them. It is a punishment for sin, but it's also to prevent them from doing any more harm to themselves and each other. It's to limit their selfish ambition and the damage that they're doing to each other in trying to achieve it. So God intervenes, but it's a kind of merciful judgment. He confuses their language. And of course, the confusion prevents a a cooperation from happening. The communication breakdown leads to community breakup. And so they stop building, and the city is abandoned. It's not abandoned forever. That's what Nimrod does. He turns up at this sort of half-finished Babylon, finishes up, makes it the center of his kingdom. But there's a deep irony to Babylon. What was intended to be a a monument of human power and fame, forever becomes a symbol of human pride and folly. For the rest of the Bible, then in verse nine, the Lord scatters them over the whole face of the earth. That's what we see happening in chapter ten as God disperses the people across the world. See, they they try to resist God's purposes. They don't want to be scattered. But God gets his way in the end. Through his merciful judgment. The world is filled with people. The world is filled with people. According to their clans and languages. In their territories and nations. But this section in Genesis 11. It ends with judgment doesn't it? So far in Genesis. Every time there's been judgment. There's been hope. Clothes for the naked. A rainbow. A covenant. But there's nothing of that here. But hope. Is on the way. Because in chapter 12. Out of all these nations and people we meet in chapter 10. God is going to choose one man. A descendant of Shem. And make a covenant with him. Abraham. And Abraham won't have to make a name for himself. Because God promises. He will make his name great. And through Abraham, through his offspring, all the nations on earth, even us, are blessed through Jesus, his descendant. I hope we'll get to Abraham at some point next year. But knowing what's coming with Abraham in chapter 12 helps us to know what to do in response to this passage. So, don't stay to make a name for yourself. Go to make a name for Jesus. Don't stay to make a name for yourself. Go to make a name for Jesus. What we see in chapter 10 then is is the effect of God's judgment that's come in chapter 11. The people scatter because God's confused their language. And, and that was God's original creation purpose. That's what God had always intended to do. Adam and Eve weren't meant to stay in Eden. They were meant to go and plant and cultivate Eden-like gardens across the whole world. But what we've seen is human beings, we have this kind of sinful resistance to going. We want to stay out of self-protection. But God graciously overcomes that and in chapter 10 we get this sample of how people are spread out across the world not every nation in the ancient world is listed in chapter 10 it's a representative sample of 70 people and place and groups but the spread looks a bit like this that's the map the sons of Japheth in red they go north and west through Turkey into Europe and Asia you might recognize some place from that list like Tarshish and most people think that's somewhere on the med like Italy or Spain The sons of Ham in green, they're the nearby neighbors of Israel, Egypt, Babylon, Nineveh, and the Canaanites. And then we get the sons of Shem in yellow. They're the chosen line, we saw that last week with with Noah's blessing. But they're mostly nomadic wanderers across the eastern hill country in the Arabian Peninsula. Now, chapter 10 is significant for a couple of reasons. The first one is it's obvious. It shows us the unity of the human race. Only one family survives the flood, and so the whole human population descends from this one family. It means there can be no room for racism or any kind of racial superiority because we all come from the same roots in the end. But the biggest thing that chapter 10 shows us is this dynamic to God's purposes. Human beings are meant to go. We're designed to be like God, not looking inwards, but moving outwards. And we see that in chapter 10. First of all, we're meant to go and fill the earth with this diversity of people and cultures and languages. But then when Jesus comes, there's a second movement to go. Because Jesus has given us another, a greater commission. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. 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 And make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit... Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see there's a a kind of double go. First we go and scatter and fill the world with clans and languages and territories and nations. And then with the coming of Jesus, the saviour of the world, all disciples of Jesus, me and you, are commissioned to go And make disciples of those nations. But when we hear that commission from Jesus. I think many of us, me included. We can be a lot like the Babylonians. Can't we? We'd rather stay put. Life is comfortable here. Uh, We have our church friends. We have our language. We're settled. Safe secure here and you know the early church was exactly the same as us after the day of Pentecost the church in Jerusalem was born and grew but they mostly stayed put in Jerusalem they didn't go they stayed they were comfortable in Jerusalem but in Acts chapter 8 after Stephen's death On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. I think that scattering is a deliberate echo of Babel. It's not exactly the same. Their sin is not the same. But Acts 8 shows us even Christians... Can sinfully resist God's purposes to go, to fill the world with more people being remade in the image of Jesus. We resist his call to go and make disciples of all nations. And so God allows this persecution to break out partly to ensure his purposes are fulfilled. Listen, if you're a Christian, God's call on your life is the same as it was on theirs. We are not meant to stay where we're comfortable or safe and secure. We're meant to go. Make disciples of all nations. Now, please let me be clear. Going does not necessarily mean you have to leave. You don't have to necessarily leave the country or or even the city, though it may involve that. That's why we want to support someone like John Hearn, doing that in North Africa, a place where there are very few Christians. Wouldn't it be great if, as a church, we could send someone to to go there and partner with him in that work, or send someone to another part of the world where there are few Christians, Middle East, North Africa, parts of Europe? Wouldn't it be great if we could send people to go to another part of the city to start a new church where there isn't one, or revitalise a church that's struggling? but that will only happen if we are willing to go. I think all of us ought to be ready to do that if Jesus asked. Are you? But like I said, going doesn't necessarily mean leaving. There is a way to go even as we stay. But if we are staying, we have to make sure we have a A mindset of going. See, obeying Jesus' command to go means that we can't be content just to sit here in this lovely, warm building, comfortable building with our church friends. We can't just sit here and hope that maybe if we sit here long enough and keep it warm, that other people will join us. We have to go. That's what we, we, we gather here on a Sunday as a church family to be fed from God's word, to be encouraged in the gospel, to be reminded of his grace. We need that. We need that as we come together, but we gather in order to scatter. We, we gather in order to scatter a, across the city, to be salt and light in workplaces and communities and neighbourhoods and households and streets. We go... To meet people where they are with the good news about Jesus that he died on the cross to rescue them and and forgive their sins. So that, that means we can't go simply only to invite people to come back here. Of course you want to do that. We want to make the most of opportunities we have to host things in this building and share the gospel from here. But we live in a society where fewer and fewer people are up for doing that. In Acts 8, that's not what they do. They don't go so they can just say, hey, just go back to Jerusalem. They don't do that. They go, and as they go, they preach the gospel. Ordinary Christians, not the apostles. Each of us needs to be ready to go and to share the message about Jesus wherever we are, to invite people to read through Mark's gospel with us to discover more of who Jesus is. We cannot just... Stay put. Hope that people join us off the street. Praise the Lord when that happens. We can't rely on that because Jesus told us to go. Let's not resist him. I, I know that's hard. It's risky and difficult and uncomfortable to go into places where there are not very many Christians and start talking about Jesus. That's not easy. But that's why Jesus says he's with us. It's why he tells us he has all authority so that we would not be afraid. God's purpose is for us to go. To move outwards towards other people so that they too might know the blessing that Jesus brings. And we do that especially to people who are different from us. Who speak a different language or have a different cultural background or from a different country. So that... That, revela- that, that vision from Revelation is fulfilled. That great multitude that no one can count from every tribe, nation, people, language, praising Jesus for rescuing them. And do you know the praise that Jesus receives on that day will be all the greater for the diversity of languages heard singing and praising him. Let's be part of that with the help of the Holy Spirit, let's go. Let's join in with what God is already doing in our community, in our city, and across the world to make disciples of all nations. Don't stay to make a name for yourself. Go to make a name for Jesus. Let's pray.